Welcome to the 9 to 5 Killers podcast, an explorative and insightful journey inside the minds of some of the most successful entrepreneurs who have killed their day jobs to pursue their passions. Streets raise me, born in 80s baby, Lord save me, cause today I'm going crazy with this bullshit, 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 crazy with this bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Welcome to episode six of the nine to five killers podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Graham. Today, I'll be joined by my lovely guest, freelance journalist, Miss Norlane Kawaja. Welcome to the show, Norlane. Thanks so much for having me, Glenn. I'm really excited. So tell me a little bit about where you're from for my guests that don't know. So I was born in Pakistan. I was born to a Kashmiri family uh, in a small city in Pakistan called Sialkot. And I moved to the U.S. when I was five. Interesting. So your mom and your dad are from Pakistan? They are. They're both uh, from Pakistan and ethnically Kashmiri. But it's a little weird because my mom's family actually lives in Kenya. So there's also the association that we have with East Africa because her family's all from there. Oh, so your mom is from Kenya. Uh, well, her family's from Kenya and your dad is from Pakistan. Right. But it's a little bit more confusing than that because <laughs> um, my mom's siblings all ended up moving to Kenya after one of her, her eldest sister actually got married. And my mom ended up getting married in Pakistan. That's where she and my dad met and came to the U.S. So it's 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 uh, she never lived there like all of her siblings do, but they're all from there and have been there for decades. Oh, OK. Interesting. So for people that don't know, you're you're a you consider yourself a freelance reporter. Right. I'm a freelance journalist and reporter um, specializing in politics and global affairs. So full disclosure here, I have somewhat of a mistrust for journalists and i'll tell you where it comes from it's not the journalists themselves it's the big news organizations i feel like corporations run them so if a corporation runs uh an um an institute and people work for them you're kind of obligated to whatever narrative they're pushing usually it affects how the reporter reports do you feel that way with freelance reporting I don't feel that way with freelance reporting. And, you know, given my background, I worked for a really big name like Al Jazeera English Television, which is a huge kind of international news organization based in the Middle East. And of course, like most news organizations, even the ones overseas, everybody does have a narrative that they are pushing. So I will agree with you in that sense. But I even feel like my reporting for them, I really tried whatever we were covering to have it really be down the middle. So make sure I listen to somebody from this side and then somebody from that side. And I think the beauty with freelance reporting and journalism is that I get to pick a lot of the stories that I want to do and I want to focus my energy on. And there is a little bit more editorial flexibility as well, which is what I love. So you would say that working for Al Jazeera was, um, what Al Jazeera, Eng England, you said, right? English. English. So working for Al Jazeera English was kind of like your day job, like your major day job. And now what, what made you decide to go into freelance reporting. Up until you, I didn't know that reporters did freelance work. 
Right. So it was my main day job, if you will. Granted, the hours might have been a little bit different because you're a journalist. You're always kind of on call and the news is always happening. So maybe the hours weren't strictly like a nine to five and maybe it was more a 10 to, to seven or even later than that, depending on evening broadcasts. But you're right in that sense where it really was that job that was a full time job, amazing benefits, amazing salary. You had all of that. Um, I transitioned to become a freelance reporter, actually, because uh, once I left the company, I decided I was going to leave the company and I became an independent freelance reporter based out of Nairobi. I, I left Al Jazeera and at that time I was based in Qatar in the Middle East. And I said, listen, I'm going to leave kind of because all I've known uh, at that point was Al Jazeera and this kind of corporate news world. So I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go and challenge myself and do something completely different. So I became a backpack journalist based out of East Africa and did some pretty amazing stories. Uh, and then I decided I'd always wanted to get my master's degree. And so I went to Colombia, actually, and focused on politics and global affairs. And so I graduated for Columbia last year. And when I graduated, I actually had the opportunity to go full time. But I decided, I said, listen, I'm really enjoying like, you know, the kind of flexibility and freedom even through uh, Columbia, because the reporting that I did for them, uh, it was, you know, there were stories that I got to pick and I got to kind of, you know, pitch to an editor, if you will, or a professor. And that kind of uh, was a was a natural process, if you will, as far as reporting and, and really having full editorial control. So once that started to happen, I decided even once I graduated, I said, listen, I want to stay being a freelancer and see if I can create my own brand and pick up clients and work for them. So when working for a, a big organization, what was some of the, the, the things that you might have felt might have restricted you from doing the kind of reporting that you're doing now? I think a lot of times, and this happens in organizations, probably not just in news, but once you become really good at something, you might get pigeonholed just in that specific role. So that's all they might see you as, right? Or they realize like, oh, she's only good for producing or occasionally we'll send her out to do an interview with this person or this person or go out into the field and do this. But if you have bigger dreams and bigger aspirations, they they it's not necessarily them trying to, um, you know, hinder the dreams or aspirations. I just think once you become really good at one specific role, it's hard for them to see you as anything else and you want more. So I wanted to travel a little bit more and report in other places, not just in the US or maybe not just in Qatar, for example. So I wanted I wanted more. So I think but that I think happens across all different types of fields where, oh, we're not going to promote you or let you do X, Y and Z because you're so good at this and we need you to stay doing this because that's how we're making the money. Right. 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 And do you think that when you're when you're out there, when you're out there hustling now, how are you? making sure that it's something that, cause you got, you are used to a, a regular salary. How do you make, make ends meet in terms of like when you, when someone hires you, how, how does, how does one hire you even? I don't, I'm not even sure how that process works. Okay. So uh, a lot of it, uh, the, the, you know, clients that I've picked up, it's definitely been through networking. So it's going back to, you know, Al Jazeera. I, I, 
help them out at the UN, for example, uh, covering the Security Council once in a while when they need me. So when I sign that contract, it's a temporary freelance contract and they hire me on an as needed basis. So if they need help, if somebody is sick, if somebody's on vacation, then they will reach out to me and say, we want to book you for this day or these days or on the day. Are you available? And if I'm not servicing another client, then of course I'll take the work. And similar to this other uh, news network that I started to help out, it's based out in Times Square. It was an up and coming international news channel and they were actually hiring a lot of former Al Jazeera journalists. And I knew the the boss over there because he was actually in charge at Al Al Jazeera English. He reached out to me saying, hey, like, you know, we would love to have you help us out. So I started to be a correspondent and senior producer for them. So a lot of it is through networking, to be honest. Um, But as far as how people hire me, again, it's that same old concept of a temporary contract and they book me on an as needed basis. And that's how I pick up the shifts, if you will. But financially, I mean, I agree with you. Uh, When you take such a big risk and you leave, let's say like a six figure salary and you're ready to just be on your own, it's 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 uh, scary. And I at first was um, very hesitant because of the fact that it wasn't the steady income coming in. Again, it's I have slower weeks. I have busy weeks. So a lot of it, um, I, I think it, the challenge became how do I manage myself and actually become a sustainable business and a a model for success. I will say in the beginning, I relied heavily on um, my parents and thanks to their, I'm very grateful uh, to them for helping to kind of keep me going if it is a slower time. So financially, I've uh, been supported by them. And I think that's challenging for a lot of journalists that want to go freelance. They want to have the ability to tell stories that they want to tell or go report where they want to go report, but they might not have the financial backing to do so. Um, And since I've been doing it for more than a year now, um, freelancing on my own, I feel like I've started to be build a kind of a steady stream because I've picked up, you know, a couple more clients. So again, it's, it'll just be me pitching a story to an editor and saying, are you interested? And if they're interested, they'll respond, you know, and say yes, and we're willing to pay you this much. So it that's kind of how it works. So you have to kind of collect the coins, if you will. Okay, I get it. And when you pitch, when you pitch to a, uh, a news organization, and how do you know that what you're pitching, they won't just use it for themselves? Or, or they might take the idea and, or did that happen sometimes or it never happens? There was one instance uh, that happened last summer, actually, and this has never happened before, where I had pitched something to a well-known news network, um, and uh, I didn't receive any favorable email response back from this uh, woman who was the editor of this news network. Uh, And about two weeks later, I saw that actual piece running on their website that was the piece that I had pitched so it was a very niche story and it was actually something I had started I did a report I did reporting in Zanzibar and there was a follow-up story that I wanted to do Um, and I didn't do the reporting in Zanzibar which is off the coast of East Africa 
um, and it's a part of Tanzania for people that might not know. But I had done that reporting as an independent journalist on my own. And when I left Zanzibar, I told myself, hey, I do want to come back because this is another story I really want to look into. And so a couple years go by, you know, I finished at Columbia. And again, last year I pitched this to an editor and I was shocked when I saw it on their news website that it was the exact story that I had pitched to them in Zanzibar. Wow. And when, and so I imagine um, that you don't reach out to them and say, um, pitch anything else to them. I, I have not. I have okay. not. And knowing me and my personality, I did kind of send an email back saying, oh, how pleasant or how lovely the story <laughs> I've seen it. So I did send a message like that. I never received a response back to this day. Well, I never, I never thought of it um, almost like a person can like almost like a movie. You can, you can pitch an idea and then someone can run with it. I hadn't thought about that for news. Would you say that uh, when you, when you told your parents that you wanted to leave the job and, uh, and your loved ones, what was the response about you going out kind of, cause you, when you go out on your own, you're kind of, you're on your own. When you're, when you're with a, when a news team, there's a team, but when you go out to these, um, these loner kind of things, you're by yourself or do you have a cameraman? Do you have a crew? For the most part, I'm by myself. And I think even to this day, you'd be surprised. My mom still fears for my safety and where am I going? What am I doing? Um, she obviously is one of my biggest supporters in the field, but she definitely feels uh, that sometimes I put myself in situations that might not be the safest for me. And again, I think that it's that adrenaline rush and that intensity that I crave. So I can't help but want to go to some of those places. Uh, my dad is uh, much more understanding, I would say, because he himself was a print journalist in Pakistan when he was uh, based there. Obviously, they're all here now. So he understands it a little bit better. But um, they were very shocked when I initially left Al Jazeera because for them, that was stability. That was um, that was an amazing job and it was an amazing gig. And it truly was. And anybody would feel so blessed and lucky to be able to have that. And I did feel that. But I was just ready for a challenge, something else. Right. Would you say that would you say that you didn't feel fulfilled? Because what I'm hearing from you is. Like when, like most jobs, when someone, when someone's good at something, you end up like, for, for example, when I started doing photography, I avoided doing events. I used to be an event planner and in my industry for, for a minority, black male minority, uh, and in, in the field of photography, we usually go to events. I see a lot of my friends were going, doing events and they don't, and you don't get a paid a lot doing that kind of stuff. And the work for me didn't feel very, it felt like a, a hire, a gun for hire, as one of my other friends mentioned in a previous uh, podcast that we did. And I did feel like that. I felt like, you know, I would go work a, work a job, you taking pictures, but at the end of it, you felt like anybody could take those pictures. You just happened to be the guy there with the camera. So did you feel like that at, at any point? Like you were just like doing stuff and it wasn't according to where you might've seen yourself going? Well, I think it was also um, had to do a lot with the stories that we were telling. So let's say if since Al Jazeera is based in the Middle East, so a lot of the top three or four stories, it was Iraq, it was Yemen, it was Syria. So when I was producing the news every single day, 
those were the stories that we were covering. And the images were the same, horrifying images of children and blood and war, like the realities of life. But in it, it started to really, I think, take a toll on my, I mean, I don't want to say mental health, but I think I felt like, wow, I should be doing stories that and, and showing the world stories and, and positive stories. So that's where the idea came for me to go and move to Nairobi. Um, and when I was doing the stories in East Africa, they I was shining a spotlight on stories that where Africans were actually changing the world. And I was trying to go away from the narrative that's often painted in mainstream media about a place like East Africa and countries like Kenya and Tanzania and Ethiopia and trying to change that and say, listen, it's more than just war and famine and terrorism and Al-Shabaab. Like there's so much more that's happening. So it was that type of mentality that I had. I want to tell stories. But at that point, I was like, I want to tell really positive stories, people that are making a change in their community. I want to give a voice to the voiceless, but the people that are really impacting their world and they're not getting enough coverage. Right. And so it's funny because one of the, one of the things, and I'll, I, I can mention, I know you didn't mention certain news, something, but I'll mention the news that I used to watch. I used to watch New York One and only watched it because it happened to be playing and I had a TV set and it was right before I went to work every day. So I found myself watching New York One and I thought it was decent at one point until there was a story one time about uh, there was a company that did some kind of embezzling or something like that and the woman from New York One was covering it. And then midway through the story, when she was reading off the people that were a parent, um, they were a parent company of New York One. Wow. And they had and she had to stop talking. She's like, it appears that this company is a parent company of New York One. So she couldn't cover any more of the story right then and there. And that was my first understanding that like once again, this is the press is supposed to be uh, the voice of the people. How can you be the voice of the people when someone's paying a bill? Right. I don't understand. So it made me kind of lose like, and then there were other, there were other cases like that, that made me start to lose in like trust in the media. I believe um, Denzel Washington said something recently. Uh, I don't know how long ago it was. I found a clip. He was talking to a bunch of news reporters and he said, if you don't watch the news, then you're not informed. But if you watch the news, then you're misinformed. And some of the reporters there, they were looking at him like, well, what are you doing? What are you going to do? And he, and he, he brought up a, a topic that I bring up often. We are in a time now where I remember when there weren't all of these blogs and these online plat, platforms popping up. At first I thought they were great, but what also happens is people are in a rush to be first and not even be right, but be first. And when you do, when you try to rush and be first all the time, you don't always get things right. You have to be careful. And even in the newsroom for Al Jazeera, as reputable as a news organization as they are, I can name probably up to three incidents that I can recall in my seven year career with them where we were really trying to be the first to break the story and we were not accurate. We were not right. Um, but also going back to the point of why I left, I think I also agree with you in the sense of I wanted to talk to the people. I wanted to be on the ground somewhere. So a lot of that is what drove me as well to become freelance, where I want to be out in the field. I don't necessarily want to be in the newsroom and I want to be talking to 
again, the people. Wow, that's so interesting, your, your, your viewpoint, because when I see the, the, the reporters that, that I'm watching, they want to be in the newsroom. They don't want to be out in the field. I saw, I saw you recently on Twitter and you were covering the, the situation in Puerto Rico. Can you speak on that and tell me uh, how did you come to know about the situation? Maybe I explain to my viewers a little bit because I have people that are, are Puerto Rican that watch this, that listen to my um, podcast about what you were covering. Right. So the protests in Puerto Rico, I got there on the ground, I want to say at least a week after they started. And I immediately um, pitched myself to my clients and everybody wanted that story because uh, it was hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets. The energy, the intensity. And and um, also there was, you know, a moment or two where I really started to fear for my safety and my life because I'm on top of these barricades with a camera and I'm filming the scene uh, and, and, and right behind the barricade, it's the riot police and they obviously can do whatever they want. And at a, at a certain point in the protest, they were also using uh, tear gas and rubber bullets. So the protests in Puerto Rico, what, what happened is, is the people, they, they found out that their uh, then governor, uh, Ricardo Roseo, uh, was corrupt. I think they always knew that uh, Puerto Rico has been run by decades of miscorruption by various governments, but there were these leaked chat messages that exposed his government and all of his allies and, it, and it, it messages in which he was mocking uh, victims of uh, dead people of Hurricane Maria and also the LGBTQ community in Puerto Rico. Also, he was mocking the mayor of San Juan. So it was a lot for the people. I think that the boiling point, and I spent a, almost a month down in Puerto Rico talking to people. For them, it was when he was mocking dead people. That is what brought out you know, women, men, young, old. I had, I interviewed a woman crying. She was in a wheelchair. And she had come from a town that was about 40 minutes away. This woman in her 60s had never protested before in her entire life. There was a farmer, another woman. She came on a tractor and she was there protesting. You know, it was these stories. You had old men, grandfathers. Um, they, they were holding signs. And in Spanish, like trans, translating now, it just said that they were grateful to the younger generation for waking up and doing what they couldn't do. So within just a matter of a few short weeks, this governor resigned. It was a pressure. It was a people. It worked. And he resigned. He, it, was, it was incredible to we, be there and to witness history firsthand. And the jubilation on the streets and the energy, I'm telling you, Glenn, it was unlike anything else I'd ever felt before. Wow. And how do you feel to be a part of that? Like know that you're reporting has something to do. And then, cause what happens is like the same way you were down there, uh, I'm here and I'm able to find out what's going on by just logging on my computer. Cause what happens is you don't get the spin that you would get from a bigger news media that maybe that may think that something like that is too small to cover. Right. And uh, believe it or not, I think this, uh, by the time I got down there, some of the bigger networks, if you will, also started to come down and had their own correspondence. But you're right. The access that I was giving to the viewers, let's say it was uh, unlike anything that they were watching on their 
TV screens and the live shots that I was doing. So that's when you're, you know, reporting right outside of the governor's mansion. And there are all these people. It was uh, it was very intense. And um, it, it was a political crisis that every single day something different was happening. So even for me as a journalist and reporter, just trying to keep up with Puerto Rican politics. And uh, because within a span of five days, they had three governors. So it was a lot, but I think just for me, again, being a part of history and seeing the people achieve it, again, I wasn't there with one side or the other. I was just there showing and telling the story of whomever I had access to. It just so happened that I had more access to protesters than uh, the governor's office. I reached out many times, as you can imagine, but I didn't hear back. So it was, you know, I had access to the people and their stories and their anecdotes and how much this Hurricane Maria, you know, had affected them to that moment and the trauma that they felt. Again, it was that real raw you know, emotion that I was able to get out of people and eventually deliver on air. Do you find that um, that's very interesting? Like, you know, you, you have this connection to the people, right? When, but do you feel that when you are reaching out to bigger, let's say like the governor's office or people and they don't, they're not familiar with maybe the people that you are representing, do you find resistance that they don't want to talk to you and they want to talk to bigger organizations? I wouldn't say that's the case. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with just their media strategy. So what I found out is that they're willing to talk to me eventually if they, you know, look me up or maybe they know somebody who knows somebody who knows me. So it's not necessarily me or maybe even the the brand or company or the client that I'm, uh, you know, trying to pursue them for as far as getting an interview or getting access. I think a lot of what happened in Puerto Rico had to do with as far as me not being able to secure the government interviews, even the Puerto Rican media that's based down there they were not able to secure any of these interviews. So in my mind, I, I truly believe it was just a matter of kind of their media and press strategy. Like, we're not going to say anything. Let's just be quiet. Let's not even give them anything. So I think that's what it was. And do you ever find in, in other cases that they look at journalists to see who is going to be nicer on the questions and maybe play softball with them sometimes? I think so. I think so. And I think that's why I felt like I might have had a shot because I thought, OK, I'm an outsider. He doesn't know me that well. So he knows I'm not going to give him really tough questions. So maybe if he agrees, I'll go easy on him initially and then and then drop him with a really heavy question at the end. So that's in my mind. That's why I thought he would be more inclined. You'd be surprised. A lot of these leaders, they're more inclined to speak to somebody from the outside than somebody from their country. Um, because they know that again, like, just like what you said, that we would go a little bit easier on them. I think that's always kind of their mentality. What would you say is cause I'm, cause when did you, when did you decide that you wanted to be a journalist and who inspired you? That's a great question. So I always grew up around the news. Like I told you, my dad was a print journalist based in Pakistan. My great grandfather actually ran um, an English daily based in Pakistan, which is crazy. So I want to say that journalism runs in my blood. 
Um, but I do have to give credit to my mother because my dad is a little bit more shy, if you will. So my mom is actually the one that was like a top debater in, in Pakistan um, in, in her youth. And so I get kind of my communication skill as far as speaking and, and broadcast uh, from her because my dad's better at writing and he's much more scholarly and, and much more of an intellect. Mom is a bit more conversational, a bit more fun to talk to. So I definitely have to give it up to both of them. But the first time that I ever knew that I was going to be a journalist, I must have been very young. I want to say about 10 years old and I we took a field trip uh my school we did we took it to the museum and at that time it's not the museum that's in Washington now this gorgeous new building that they redid back then it was based in Arlington in Virginia and we went there and we had to do mock reporting so uh for those that don't know the museum it's a museum based solely on news and journalism and the press uh in the U.S. amazing museum if you get a chance go to D.C. check it out And we did a mock report and I had to pretend like I was outside of the White House. At the time, it was President Bill Clinton inside. So I got to hold a mic. I got to stand in front of this green screen, which ended up being the White House. And I got to record a VHS tape. Yes, I'm dating myself now. I got to record a VHS tape that I got to bring home for my parents. And it was me reporting outside of the White House. President Bill Clinton's inside. The economy's looking great. Yeah, that was me. Okay, I like that. Yeah. Would you say that what would be something, a story that sits with you to this day that makes you proud of, you know, it could be an individual story, but a story that touched you that you brought to to light? I uh, still to this day um, think that one of the biggest moments of my career, uh, it was when the Arab Spring happened back in 2010 and 2011. What was that, the the Arab Spring. So that's when there was regime change all across the Middle East and North Africa, you know, and it started with Egypt. So it started with the fall of Mubarak and then it went over to, you know, Libya, Tunisia. Actually, it it really started in Tunisia. Um, And covering kind of this change for democracy uh, in the Middle East and all of these countries and people in the streets that were protesting, Um, and they wouldn't give up. Uh, That was really big. Although I wasn't on the ground in these countries uh, while the Arab Spring was happening, definitely the role that Al Jazeera English played, and this actually won us a Pulitzer, uh, the role that we played, even behind the scenes scenes, as a young uh, journalist producing the news, I was based out of the Washington DC office and I was, you know, in charge of, for example, calling some of the, trying to find out via social media, Twitter, who are some of the people protesting in Cairo and, and how can I interview them and get them on the air to talk to our anchor. So just helping to propel this, you know, democratic change in the Middle East and across the Middle East, I think to this day is, is one of the biggest uh, moments and some Something that I'm really proud of as a channel that we were able to do because the influence that we had, obviously our bread and butter is the Middle East. So the influence that we had to see these leaders that had been there for decades fall and and the people, you know, got in the streets and they asked for it. And and this actually happened like that was huge for me, for my career, where I felt like, you know, and I'm getting goosebumps right now talking about it, where I felt like 
this is a really monumental historic moment. And wow, I contributed to it. Sure, I wasn't on the ground in the field, but I was definitely like helping to try to news gather from Washington and talking to people over there in those specific countries and really taking part in it. So that is is something I will always remember um, even decades from now that, wow, I helped contribute to that. Um, Although, of course, the end result, we do have a lot of political instability in these countries now. Um, So the end result is we'll have to save that for another podcast. Right, right. So I'm going to ask you something a bit more personal because I feel like reporters, you guys ask people all these personal questions. (laughs) And how does it feel to be on the other end of it? It's really interesting. I'm just glad I don't have to make up the questions as I go along. So I'm glad somebody else is doing it tonight. You like that? Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you about your personal life. Now, I understand you were married at one point. So what happened? So I... um uh, I was married. I got married when I was 26, and uh, my marriage ended uh, around the time that I was 30. And my divorce was actually finalized last year, so it took a little bit longer um, than most uh, typical uh, divorces would. But I think overall, it wasn't really a garden variety issue, um, as my therapist would say. Uh, what ended up happening was I found out years later after being with the same person for seven years total that he was suffering from bipolar disorder and it was a very severe form of bipolar disorder and it happened um quite abruptly and it honestly imploded my entire world where i was left with um i ended up leaving the job that i had in uh, east africa so i packed everything up i came back to the US because at that time he and I were doing long distance and uh, I was so afraid for him and uh, what he was doing as far as making threats against me and in general that uh, I had to get him uh, involuntarily committed in a mental institution. And that's when the doctors looked at him and, and told me the news. Essentially it was breaking news and it was so, it's so surreal talking about it now because I usually am the one that covers other people's tragedies. And at that moment, I was left completely helpless and heartbroken and in the darkest time of my life. Um, And it was my world that was imploding. And I felt like the lens was on me and it was my story and it was our story. And so I had no choice but to... Um, because it was also, um, hereditary. And so I, I literally had no choice, but to, uh, you know, I had, obviously it was a huge decision, but to leave, uh, that marriage and, um, you know, that was actually something good always comes out of something bad and you never see it at that moment. So as, as much as I was suffering and in this dark place where I could only see the color black around me. Um, that's when I decided at that moment, uh, on a whim, uh, to apply to Columbia and I got in. So I'd always wanted to get my master's and it was actually my mom that said, Hey, wait a second. You always wanted to go to Columbia and get your master's degree. You never did it. Cause again, I got married fairly young. I mean, 26 is uh, nowadays it's considered to be. It's it's young at any time, but yes. 
I yes. would say so. It's young. And so it was something that I had put off doing, getting my master's, because I love learning. I love reading. I'm very much a nerd at heart. And I didn't get a chance. I had to put all of that on hold, not only because I got married. I don't just want to blame it on the marriage or my now ex-husband, but it was also because my career was on an up and up and you aren't thinking about school or getting your master's. And I thought, boy, I'm too old at this age to get my master's because at that time I had hit 30. But God has a funny way of working. And I ended up turning something so tragic um, into something a little bit brighter. And I decided I wanted to do it. I wanted to get my confidence as uh, a woman, as a, you know, a journalist, as a scholar. And so I applied and I got in. That's an awesome story. Would you say that when um, this happening to you, because you said oftentimes you're on one side and you're listening to people's tragedies, has this made you more empathetic to other people's hurt? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's could made you, could me- you provide, sorry, Could you provide a situation of when you felt that way after the fact or maybe before? Right. So I think now when somebody is so vulnerable and exposes themselves to me, their raw, pure form, that being tears, I feel it. I feel it in their soul. So when I talked to this woman who had been affected by Hurricane Maria when I went last year to report on one year on from Hurricane Maria in an all uh, Afro-Puerto Rican community called Luisa, and I, and I saw this woman crying as I was interviewing her, I felt it. My soul felt it. It's, it's, it, my heart was her heart. Her hurt was my hurt. So I feel it a lot more. I guess I never truly understood the power of pain and, and how great people feel it and the trauma or the PTSD that comes with it. And that is just one moment where I really felt it. Or for example, when I, you know, I went to uh, Kenya after all this happened and was making a film for Colombia and, you know, mothers are crying to me. It was a film about um, albinism, children that have albinism, people that have albinism. I'm sorry, um, if you, excuse my ignorance. What is albinism? Albinism is a rare genetic disorder where uh, because of the, the, the skin tone, the pigmentation appears to be a lot whiter. And so when you're living in an all black world, like or, or all black society, like Kenya, these people are persecuted against because they look different. Um, so when I'm talking to these mothers, I feel the pain. I feel it. I really do. And not just take, take journalism aside for a second, Glenn. It's when I'm sitting in a Starbucks and I see a young woman my age, maybe a little bit younger, older, doesn't matter, or even a man, and they're crying, I no longer judge them for crying in public. I don't judge them. In fact, I would if... I, I could, but I want to respect their personal space, go up and give them a hug and tell them it's going to be okay. Because guess what? That was me crying in that Starbucks, tears flooding at any given moment. It just happens, you know? And it used to happen so frequently after the marriage ended that I, I stopped caring what other people would think about me if they saw me out in the street at a restaurant at a coffee shop crying. And, and you know what? It's funny that you say that because when, when, you're a, when, you're, when you're a woman and you cry, you can cry at work and you can go 
and continue the day after you wipe your tears. But what people don't consider is when you're a man and you cry, because I've heard even women say, oh, well, he's not a man if he's crying. I need my man to be strong. And I remember a recent, like not recently, it was about, I'd say about a year ago, I was talking about what I was working on and, and, and what motivated me to, to work on nine to five killers and feeling a way that I wasn't being able to move up in my, my current job. And I felt restricted. And I was telling, and I was telling, I was talking to my friend uh, and I was thinking about all, um, thinking about all of the people that I know that didn't make it uh, out of whatever situation it was. And I was feeling guilty to be complaining about something as silly as work. And as I'm talking, tears started rolling out of my eyes. And I can tell you, my friend, he looked at me, he was like, cause when a guy sees another man cry <laughs> and I didn't care, it was like, I don't, it was one of those things. Right. Like, I, I no longer care when right. people see me cry. People look at me when I cry, I don't wipe my tears. I, I don't necessarily sniffle, but it just tears run down my face. And they're like, something's wrong with your eye. I'm like, yeah, I'm crying. For right. me, it means a lot to be able to, especially in this society, as a man, to be able to express yourself or any any person. Right. But mainly, I think there's a double-edged sword with a man, like where a, a man is not allowed to cry or is supposed to be strong. Like I never see my father cry, but I don't have a I don't have a problem with it. And I think that it's great that it took something for you to be able to express yourself. Right. More. And also for me to express other people's emotions. So when they're crying during those interviews, or if I see, a, again, a random person crying. But I think that, uh, you know, the, the crying is just maybe one aspect of it. I really think that uh, just in general, like when, when people are able to express themselves and be vulnerable, that to me is a sign of power. And that to me is a sign of their strength. And it took a long time for me to get to this point because most people, when they see me, they see, okay, she's a fearless badass, if I can use that word, you know, journalist who's been all over the world and traveled and done these incredible stories. And so for me even to expose my emotions right. is a big deal. It's kind of like what you were saying about men uh, crying. So for me to feel so weak, quote unquote, um, you know, or how that's how I would have seen myself before if I was, oh my goodness, I'm crying in public or, oh my goodness, uh, people are going to see me and, and say, wow, this journalist, oh, now she's crying. Look at her. But I, you know, that to me was a sign of my strength. I love it. And I have one final question for you. Now, this is the question of the nine five killers. Okay. If you can talk to your younger self, what advice would you give yourself uh, professionally, uh, romantically, whatever. I think I would tell myself to be bold, be fearless. Don't be afraid of the unknown because we get so comfortable. If it's in, for example, a relationship, it's a job, it's with our family. If anything is going, um, you know, a way that you don't want it to go, if the dynamic is off, if you're not achieving something, let's say your needs aren't being met in a relationship or uh, you're not achieving your personal or professional goals, I think at the end of the day, stop what you're doing 
and just take the leap. You have to do it. You have to build your character. It's going to make you better. It's going to make you stronger. And I would have told myself that from the beginning, do not be afraid and, and just trust yourself. I think a lot of times we look for others around us to give us that sense of, you know, um, Uh, I don't know what the word is, but for them to kind of validate what we're doing, don't go with your gut and take that risk and do whatever it is that's going to make you happy, but that's also going to help you grow in a relationship with your family, in a job. I think that's so important. It's so funny. I love that last statement. So powerful because I feel like even with whatever I'm doing, there's a person trying to tell me the, the give me the coordinates of to what I'm doing. How do you know what advice to give a person when you've never been there before, when you don't know the direction or the, the area that I'm heading in? So I think it's very important that you gave, give yourself that kind of bump and not wait for someone else to validate you and tell you that you're doing what you're doing is right, but just to continue to grow, expand, take risks often. I tell my friends so much, you know, I know so many talented people who are unwilling to take risks and they stay in a certain level and they are comfortable there. And, and whenever you, whenever I felt the most extreme amount of pressure or discomfort is when I've made the most growth in my life. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing your, your words of wisdom with us. Yeah, you're welcome. And I also want to say like everybody's journey is different. So less comparing yourself to other people and focus on you and your goals, whatever they are. Wow. Thank you for coming on Five Killers. Is there any way people can, um, any, their social media that we can follow you on? And Yeah, absolutely. So it's a little bit long, so I'll spell it out for you. But on Instagram, it's at, and it's my first and last name and I'll spell it. It's N-O-O-R-U-L-A-I-N. K-H-A-W-A-J-A. So Nora Lane Kawaja, that's on uh, IG, on Instagram. And then on Twitter, it's a little bit easier. It's at Nora Lane K. So again, it's on Twitter, it's at, and then Nora Lane, N-O-O-R-U-L-A-I-N-K. Well, thank you for coming on, Nora Lane. That's a beautiful interview and I'm so happy that you were able to make it. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Glenn. I had a great time. Thank you so much. All right. to five killers podcast is now available for your listening pleasure on spotify apple podcast and stitcher